Good morning, everyone. You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew, or sorry, not Matthew, Mark. You might have to turn through Matthew to get there, but we're going to be in Mark. We're in Mark chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 9 through 14. Tom, I really appreciate that testimony, and actually, it's uh, another testimony to how God uses all things, and I always love when God weaves things together, because we're actually going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. Um, this morning. But yesterday, uh, some of you know, once again, we're very thankful um, because um, we moved into our house here in Sheboygan yesterday, um, and we have so much to be thankful for with all of you who made us feel welcome to come in and to help us to move our stuff. I think it would have taken me about 15 loads. Um, We got it done in what was like two hours, hour and a half, yeah, Um, very quickly. We had had time to get the bed set up. It was fantastic. So we slept well. Um, we're excited to be in our new house, in our new town, here with you, and to really get to know you guys, to press into um, making relationships and to, to loving you as you've loved us. In the meantime, we have been staying with my parents in Milwaukee. Uh, it's really been a really sweet time. They have absolutely loved it. We've loved it too, but they've loved it especially because Titus has been there. Um, and uh, fr- on Friday night, my mom was pulling out some old pictures uh, some old baby pictures of me so that we could compare them to Titus to see. Because up, up till now, I've been pretty convinced that Titus really has gotten all of his looks from Ellie. And that's great because she's definitely the prettier one. <laughs> but on, here I am on Friday night, and um, it was kind of weighing on me. Cause I, think, I don't think he's got any of my features. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I'm working on my sermon Friday night, and I hear Ellie call me from downstairs. She says, Philip, come here. Look at this picture. And I go down and she hands this picture to me. And I think, oh, wow, look, a picture of Titus. It's not a picture of Titus because it's from the 90s. (laughs) I guess the apple didn't fall so far from the tree after all. And I got a lot of joy out of that picture. Because as a father, it's, it's a lot of, there's a desire that I have for my son to be like me. I wanted to be like his mom. I wanted to be his own person. I, I know that he'll have his own personality, his own interests, his own achievements. Um, he loves milk a whole lot more than I do. But there's some pleasure in the thought that he's going to be like me, at least just a little bit. I, I, I desire in, in a small way that he, I, that he would be like me. And I think in a, in a very small way, that's similar to the way that God feels about His children. God delights on a much, much greater scale to transform His children to look like His Son for the glory of King Jesus. When when God saves His people, He isn't just rescuing them from wrath. It's not that God just rescues us from hell. No, He adopts us to be His sons and His daughters. The God is the rags-to-riches story. It, it, it's, it's not just that God stopped short of dealing a killer blow of justice to us, and He just let us go. No, He makes us something worthy of His delight. And He does this by rescuing us from slavery to sin and to death, making us alive together with Christ. The gospel is so much more than just rescue. It's also transformation. It's being conformed to the image of Jesus so that we can be the children of God 
with him. Those, those who are in Christ have received an inheritance that is far above anything this world could ever have to offer. They have joy that angels long to have. They would trade places with us because we know God as a loving Father. This love is the hope of the gospel. This is the love that has brought us here together today to worship together as a church. And this is the love we're going to read about today. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're in Mark chapter 1. We're in verses 9 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, I think the main point of this text is this. That Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And there are three ways that I think Mark shows us how God transforms us to be like Jesus. There are these. There's going to be three points this morning. We are baptized like Christ. We are loved like Christ. And we are made holy like Christ. We are baptized like Christ, we are loved like Christ, and we are made holy like Christ. Now, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, you'll know Mark has a really unique style of writing. He moves quickly. He doesn't wait on anything. He, he, his account is really a bit different than the other Gospels because it's so short and sweet. He is action-driven, and I think, once again, that the reason why he does that is because Mark wants us to know what Jesus does so that we can know who Jesus is, the divine Savior King. And last week, we saw Mark does this when he featured John the Baptist. He presents John the Baptist as the messenger who came before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And John did that by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and by telling those who had come to listen to him that one was coming after him who was greater than he. John was the voice crying in the wilderness, crying out for people to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And we saw, we, we finished in verse 8 last week with this promise from John. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that moment arrives in the first part of verse 9. Mark says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee. Notice there how Mark, Mark does not leave any space between John's promise and Jesus' coming because he wants us to see that Jesus is the one that John had come to prepare the way for. Look 
Someone is coming who is going to be greater than me. And then boom, verse 9, he's here. Jesus comes. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the one who is greater. He wants us to see that he is the one who has come to fulfill the anticipation of all the prophets who had come before John. And the message of, uh, the message is, that message is clear by the way that John introduces his gospel and also by the way that he structured his opening chapter. But there's something really strange about the way that Jesus comes. Look at the second part of verse 9. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why is that strange? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, it's out of order for John to be baptizing Jesus. If Jesus really is the one who is greater than John, then what on earth is John doing baptizing him? Why is, why is Jesus submitting to John's baptism? Shouldn't he be the one who's baptizing John? After all, he's the one that John spoke of who would be baptizing with the Holy Spirit. That's strange for another reason, because John's baptism, remember, it was meant to prepare the way of Jesus by calling people to repent for the forgiveness of sins and to come and to be baptized as a symbol of that, of that confession. They have filthy hearts and filthy hands. Their hearts are evil. They're full of sin. Their deeds are unfit to be before God. So what business does Jesus, as the perfect Son of God, have to be to be there and to be baptized and to be alongside these people? He has no sin. He's perfect. So why would he need to be baptized by John, who has come preaching a baptism of repentance of sins? Well, in order to, get, to understand that, I think we have to go to Matthew. Matthew gives us a few more details about Jesus' baptism, which are really helpful for understanding the significance of what's going on here. Matthew tells us that when Jesus came to be baptized, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So clearly, we learn from Matthew that John the Baptist recognized that it's way out of order for him to be the one who is baptizing Jesus. And we know that John knew something of Jesus' sinless nature, because elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he will call Jesus the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. So John knows something's off there. So, and, but why does Jesus insist that he be baptized? Why is it so necessary for him to partake of John's baptism? Well, the best explanation, I think, is this. That Jesus' baptism is a demonstration of his supreme love for his people. When Jesus came to John, he didn't come bearing sins of his own, but he did come bearing sins. They were the sins of his people. Jesus' baptism is a picture of what was going to happen on the cross. As the Son of God, Jesus had come on a mission to take sins upon Himself and to bear them in Himself to be the perfect sacrifice in our place. Jesus identifies with His people by taking on a baptism like theirs. theirs. Jesus comes to be baptized by John, and he is, he is, when He does that, He is indicating that He is resolved to take the guilt of His people on Himself 
so that he might satisfy God's righteousness and purchase our redemption. He was baptized into the death that we deserved so that by being baptized into him, those who trust in him might have life with him. Jesus' baptism shows how he was uniting himself to us to take on our death so that he might prevail over it and bring us life. There really could not be a greater expression of love than that. It is an incredible thing to think that God the Son would humble himself and submit to such a baptism. But it is important for us to see that Jesus calls us to be baptized with him. Just as he has identified with us through his baptism, Jesus now calls his people to identify with him through their baptism. Now, our salvation would not be possible unless Jesus had united himself to us. That is the only way we can be rescued. We've seen how baptism depicts Jesus' unity with his people. But I also want you to see that Jesus calls us to baptism as well. Remember, at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives the church this command after he'd risen from the grave right before he was about to ascend into heaven. And he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands his followers to be baptized, not so that they can be saved, but rather so they can show that they are having, that they have faith in him. It symbolizes their faith in him. One theologian puts it like this. It was by the of the Savior's sacrifice of himself at the basis was established for the forgiveness of sins, a forgiveness that is signified and sealed by baptism for all those who sincerely confess their unworthiness and intended to pursue their further journey in the newness of life. So baptism, it doesn't save us, but it is a mark we are a follower of God. It is a public demonstration that a person has been united with him, that they have come from death to life. And just as Jesus was baptized to show that he was identifying with his people, that he had come to rescue them from their sins, now he calls his his followers to be baptized to show that they have been united to him by faith and that they now share with him in his life. Baptism is, is, is like a door to a house that you go through to join Christ at his table. So what do you do with that? Well, first of all, if if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I'm so glad that you're here. But you need to hear a message. You need to understand that you need to become a follower of Jesus. Apart from faith in Christ, you are at war with God. And friend, that is a war that you are going to lose. Jesus offers escape from the penalty that your sins deserve. Jesus' baptism demonstrates that, that, that he has poured out his amazing love on you, on a sinner like you and me. All of us have offended a holy God. We have all broken his law, and our disobedience shows that we have loved ourselves and that then we have hated God. We have put our interests ahead of his and ahead of the interests of others. And the Bible calls that disobedient sin, and God must punish it because he is a holy and righteous judge. 
Jesus' baptism is good news for you and me today because it shows us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus loved us. And he took on our sins on himself and he bore the wrath that our sins deserved on himself instead of us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You can be made right with God. Jesus did what you could never do by paying for the sins of his people and by defeating death when he rose from the grave on the third day. But it is only good news for those who respond to him. It's not good news if you hear it and you walk away. You need to be a follower of Christ. He calls you to be baptized like him. Trust him before it's too late. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, then I hope that you can see just how important baptism is for obeying Christ. Certainly, baptism does not save us, but Christ calls us to follow him and to be baptized in his name. He makes it a call to obedience. And after seeing how resolved he is and how resolved he was to go to the cross, to identify with you, to take on your sins... And why wouldn't you also follow him in that baptism? Think about it and obey. Now, if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, remember that you have been called to holiness. Baptism celebrates the picture of Christ, of how he, he takes, he has died for, for sin, and how you have now been made alive with him. So being so identified with Christ means that you are no longer under the rule of sin. Paul puts this into perspective for us in Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united to him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So let us be careful that after having identified with Christ in baptism, not to flirt with sin and the desires that once ruled over us. Let your baptism anchor you in the identity that you now have in Jesus. So Jesus has become like us so that we might be be baptized like him. But he also comes to be like us so that we might be loved like him. After Jesus is baptized by John, Mark tells us that something extraordinary happened. Look at the second part of verse 9. And when he came up from out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus' baptism is extraordinary because for a moment, the veil is pulled back for us to see how the Trinity was at work here. The Trinity is a big word, and it's a complicated doctrine. But the Bible, we can summarize that and just give give you a quick handle on that. The Bible teaches us that that there is only one God. It also teaches us that this God is composed of three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It teaches us that each of these these persons is fully and equally God, and that at no time are they ever mixed or confused with each other, meaning that God doesn't appear like the Father one moment and then appear like the Son 
another moment, but that these persons are eternal and that they are distinct. They have the same divine nature and that they are only distinguished from each other in relationship to each other and by what they do. The Father willing, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit empowering. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been existing for all of eternity in a relationship of joy and harmony and glory that is so great that it expresses itself in unapproachable light. Joy that is light. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that He is in fact the second person of the Trinity. For all of eternity, He has enjoyed a relationship of perfect joy and love and harmony with the Father and with the Spirit that can never be measured, that can never be fathomed. No higher love is possible than the love that the Father has towards the Son and that the Son has towards the Father. This is a love that is infinite. It is as deep as the heart of God himself. And we have seen how Jesus' baptism demonstrated that he was resolved to go to the cross to pay for the sins of his people. But now I want to focus on the response that God the Father has when he sees the Son do this. He is so pleased with his Son that he tears heaven open and he shouts for all to hear, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's a powerful statement. Think about what Jesus was going to do. He was going to take sin upon himself. We might wonder, how would a father respond to that? A father who is perfect and loving and joy. How would he respond if his son said, I will go pay for the brokenness of my people? We see that the father actually has joy here. He delights in the Son. In fact, in spite of the fact that in order to pay for the sins of His people, the Son would have to take those sins upon Himself, the Father shows that His love for the Son is not broken and it is not diminished in any way. It pleased God the Father to send the Son to die in the place of sinners because it was the Father's plan to glorify the Son as the Savior who bears away the sins of the world. Jesus came because the Father sent him to rescue those who were united to Jesus by faith. We read this in, in one of the sweetest passages of Scripture. John 3:16 and 17 tell us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then we read in John 10, verse 17, when Jesus tells us this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And we read that, and we have to understand, and we have to just say, How deep are the riches of the love of God? Because remember, friends, there is nothing in us that can merit God's love. God didn't see something outside of himself and say, man, I really wish I could have that. I'm going to take my son and give him so I can have that. That's not what happens. No, he loved us while we were yet sinners. 
Jesus makes us worthy of the Father's love because he unites himself to us. He becomes one of us, and then he transforms us to become like him. This was the mission of salvation that Jesus had come to execute, and it was a mission he had received from his Father. It is a mission of infinite love. The song puts it well. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That is love. That is love. And when the Father looked at the Son as he came out of the Jordan River, he looked on him not with hate, not with disappointment, not with fear that maybe the Son wouldn't be able to accomplish it. He looked on him with love. His, the river of his love burst forth and he declared for everyone to hear, you are my beloved son. I love you and I am pleased with you. And as he said these words, it assures us that as Jesus begins his ministry and later when he sets his face to go to the cross, he did so with the Father's full acceptance and with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus alone then is qualified to be our mediator and to be our substitute. The reason why the Father's love for the Son is good news for us, the reason why it is good news for you, is because as His love flows over the Son, it flows over those who are united to the Son by faith. So as the Father's love flows on the Son, it flows over you if you are in Jesus. John 1 verse 11 tells us that those who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. God views a person who is trusting in Jesus no different than he views his own son. He sees them as in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and bearing all his worth. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him and therefore so that we might become loved like him. Now, this past week was Valentine's Day. Back in my single days, my friends and I used to joke that it really should be called Singleness Awareness Day. <laughs> not, and and the, the, really the point is this, that not having someone to love and not having someone to love you back is a hard place to be in. And I, I don't mean that just romantically. Some of you are here today and maybe you have not experienced the love of a loving father or a loving mother. Maybe you've just basically been rejected by the world. Maybe you're here and you've even experienced abuse. If that's you, I just want to say I, I am so sorry for the pain that you have endured. My heart breaks for you. My prayer this morning is that God would comfort you this morning by opening your eyes to see how richly he has poured out his love on you and Jesus. You are truly and deeply loved. You are loved and his love is able to cover the deepest of any wound. Set your mind on that. Let it anchor you to the heart of Christ. And as you do, I think you will find that, as, that the pain of past rejections will lose its sharpness. And they will slowly be replaced with the joy of knowing that in the eyes of your heavenly Father, you are accepted and you are loved. We fix our eyes 
on knowing that those who are in Christ are accepted in the beloved Son of God. And when God looks at them, He is well pleased. I pray that you would take comfort in that today. Now the third way that Mark shows us that God trans- how God transforms us to make us like Christ is that He makes us holy like Christ. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. We read this, the the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, having identified with his people in baptism, Jesus now turns and to go before him, them to accomplish the mission that he had received from his father. The Holy Spirit who had descended on him after his baptism now leads him out from John the Baptist who is in the wilderness, but at the Jordan River, he leads him from John into the isolated wilderness, away from anyone. This, this is a dangerous place. It is an untamed place. There are wild animals there, but they are not the most dangerous threat. We read also Satan came to be there, and he had come for the, for the purpose of tempting Jesus to abandon his commitment to carry out the will of his Father. Now, we read that, and we have to wonder, why would the Holy Spirit do that? Why would, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? And furthermore, why would Jesus go? I mean, he's God. He knows. Well, this was the first step of Jesus' mission. He had come to redeem his people. And the first act of that mission was to face our ancient foe, Satan. Remember that it was Satan who had tempted Adam and Eve in the, gar- in the Garden of Eden. He lured them into rebellion against God by telling them that God was holding out on them, that they could be happier if they only rejected God and they they just did what they wanted. Adam and Eve believed his lie. They disobeyed God. And as the first man, Adam serves as a representative for all of humanity. Because he sinned, all of his descendants now share in his guilt. Our hearts are inclined towards sin. We are drawn to it like a moth is, 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 is brought to a bug zapper or a magnet is drawn to metal. It's just in our nature. We want it. And in order to be set free from sin, we need a new representative. We need someone who can act on our behalf because we can't rescue ourselves. This is why Jesus goes to the wilderness. It is his first step in accomplishing the mission they had received from his father. Where Adam failed, now Jesus must prevail so that he can undo Adam's failure. Mark doesn't give us the details about Jesus' temptation. If you want to read more about that, you can look in some of the other Gospels. Mark simply tells us that Jesus was there in the wilderness for 40 days, that he faced the dangers that were there, and that he was tempted by Satan. And I think the reason why he leaves those details out is because he is content for us to know that Jesus went there and that he was victorious. And the point really is this. Jesus became like us by becoming our representative and resisting Satan's temptation so that now we can be holy like him. He is a new and a better Adam. His temptation qualifies him as the high priest who is able to intercede for us because he himself has been tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. Jesus pioneers a path for his people to live according to God's commands, 
so that we are no longer held captive to sin. God calls you to be holy because He is holy. To have a relationship with Him as He created you to have, you have to be holy. That is no longer an impossible task because Jesus has taken His righteousness and He has placed it on us. And He has defeated Satan as our representative head. Now, you and I know we are still, we still sin. We still struggle with sin. We sin daily. But when you trust in Christ, you stand before God justified. That means you are legally blameless in the sight of God. But for all of our time on this earth, we are still being sanctified. That means we are being transformed to look more like Jesus. And that is a process. You and I will continue to struggle with sin. But if you are in Christ, you are no longer enslaved by it. The same Holy Spirit who equipped Jesus to defeat Satan in the wilderness is the same one who equips us for this fight. He is the same Spirit who convicts us of sin and assures us of righteousness in Christ and equips us to resist temptation. Jesus gives us a new identity. He takes us, He transforms us, He makes us the sons and daughters of God, and He makes us to be holy like Him. That identity, the identity that He gives us, is supreme. It trumps everything. It is higher than our social standing. It is higher than the grades that we might get in school. It is higher than our place at work. It is higher than the amount of money that we make. It is higher than the house that we live in. It is higher than our sinful past. It is higher than our gender. It is higher than our race. Satan loves to take those things and to twist them so that we cling to those things rather than cling to Christ. He would love to see your identity be found in what you do and not in what Christ has done. We live in a society that will go to any length to defend and to assert that a person has the right to, be, to, to, to determine what they are and what is right for them, even if it means calling good evil and evil good. The only crime in their eyes is not being true to yourself. Well, the fact is that if I am true to myself, apart from Christ, I am a rebellious sinner and I deserve God's justice. We need a new identity. We need the righteous identity that Christ gives us. And only then can we be holy. Now, it is tempting to hear the message of the world that says you don't need to change. Just be who you are. It's tempting to believe that. I know it is. It would be much easier. I have walked with brothers, I have walked with them in pain as they felt they were going to burst if they didn't give in to temptation. With thoughts, even down to thoughts of suicide. Can't I just be a gay Christian? Can't, can't God just let me be part of that, be part of my life? And can't he just accept me for who I am? Or maybe even they are tempted to despair. My sin is so great. My desire for Christ is so weak. Can't Christ even save me? I've walked with those people. It is a hard, hard path, and that temptation is real. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you are really, really struggling with some sin, and you know it's wrong, but it just has its claws on you. And you, from the time that you wake it up, up to the time that you go down to bed, it just wears you out, and you just don't know how much longer you're going to be able to resist. Or maybe you're here and you're struggling to know how God could ever forgive you for the sin that you've already committed. There's good news for you. Jesus 
is our representative. He has overcome to make you holy. So hold on a little longer. Hold on a little longer. He will deliver you. Find your rest in Him. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to You and call You Father because Jesus called You Father. And our identity is in Him. Thank You for sending Your Son to die on the cross and to rise victoriously from the grave so that we could have life. And Father, I pray that we would be diligent this week to share this message with with those around us, that we would call others to to know Jesus, to know Him and His supremacy, and they would worship Him and submit to Him as their King. Protect your people, O God. Rescue us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.